You are listening to Hellcats Hope, episode number 11. Welcome to Hellcats Hope, the podcast to find humor, healing, and hope. Come along with Hellcat as she explores ways to help you overcome adversity and find your own inner Hellcat. Yes, Hellcat is her legal middle name, and hope is her game, bringing hope to others by showing what's possible. Here's your host, law school grad, motivational speaker, author, and certified life and smoking cessation coach, Lori Hellcat Bamford. Hey, friends. Welcome back. Episode number 11. So today, you are in for a rare treat. I am interviewing my brother, Mark Burt. And today, you're going to hear from Mark about what it was like growing up, the youngest boy of 11 children. You're going to hear about his battle with stage four non-Hodgkin's follicular lymphoma. I can say without a doubt that Mark really is the funniest person I know. He is also the best salesman I know. He has had people tell him, and it is 100% true, boy, you could sell Bibles to the devil. And he is selling a message of hope today. You're going to walk away with some humor, healing, and hope today. He has a message for those who are battling cancer or any circumstance, and those who are supportive and taking care of those battling cancer or any life circumstance. His message truly is universal. So sit back and enjoy this message for my brother, Mark. I'm so happy to see you. (laughs) I'm so happy to see you. This is fun. I really have been looking forward to this. I've thought about doing this podcast for a long time. And then in the quarantine is when it all came together. I think because I didn't have the distractions and I was forced to kind of look at things and I was like, well, I'm just going to do this podcast. I'm just going to do it. And, you know, I was looking at different formats and I knew that for the most part, I wanted to do like I've been doing, you know, basically give a speech on a topic or an idea, things to do with hope, healing and humor. And then I looked at different formats. You know, there's some podcasts where it's strictly interviews. And so I I just decided I wanted to kind of do both. You know, why I I, I didn't want to have to commit to one avenue of doing it or the other. And when I started thinking about, well, who could I interview? You were at the top of that list. <laughs> <laughs> I'm honored. I'm very honored. I really am. So I really thank you for doing this. <sighs> you hear the dog? Edit. <laughs> hey, this is going to be your last chance. And then you're going to have to go hang out with daddy. I love him. I love that dog. I love him. I love him. When I was thinking of this podcast and I knew for a fact I wanted it to be about humor healing and hope, mostly because I love alliteration and I like things to match up. (laughs) Shocker. Yeah. Right. It's like, oh, that's something new. I didn't know about you. (laughs) And so I started compiling a list of people I wanted to interview. And, you know, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to it yet, but I interviewed Sarah Burt, John's wife, on her experience with intuitive eating and just from a mental health wellness approach. Yeah. And that was probably like one of the heaviest ones Yes, that I've done. But she did such a great job. Okay, I want to do another one. Who's next? And so I looked at my list and I was like, oh, Mark's being interviewed next. Mark's up. Yeah, Mark's up. Mark's up. So thank you so much for doing this. You know, you're my baby brother. Mm-hmm. And which number are you? I am number 10 in your programs, but I'm number one in your hearts. 
<laughs> I love that. Uh, just for the listeners, yes. So at my dad's funeral, because you know, Mark and I, we put the fun in funeral, mm-hmm. I think, and dysfunction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so, jack of all trades. <laughs> and so a few of us had given just our own little eulogies and tributes to our father. And I think I went, did I go first? Yes. I think I did too. I think I just wanted to get it out of the way, right? Yeah. And of course, you know, I had my notes. We were talking about this, how I approached the podcast. I had an outline and I had the words there. And then I knew you were going to speak. And I think before the funeral, I even said, I was, hey, Mark, so I'm just going to let it, you know, be organic. And whoever talks about whatever they talk about is fine. And I think you said to me, oh, I have no idea what I'm going to say. Yeah, I actually had, because I knew that you would have notes and whoever else was going to speak would have a sheet of paper. <laughs> I just had a sheet of paper that looked like I, I knew all that I had something to say. And I even like pulled it out like, oh, like, he's prepared. No, it was it was 100% organic. Well, it was beautiful. And that's how you started. You were like, I'm Mark. I'm number 10 on your program, number one in your heart. I mean, it was It was fantastic. And you just, you have that gift and ability to bring humor to a situation that sometimes starts to feel a little bit heavy, right? Right. So you are the youngest of the boys from the original 11. Now I say original 11 that grew up in the same household, because as I've shared in prior episodes, we also had the surprise, wonderful finding of brother number six our brother, Travis. But as far as the original 11 that all grew up in the same household, you were the youngest boy and you were number 10 of 11, right? That is correct. Right. And I want to talk about that first. What was it like growing up one of 11 children? So there is a big misconception when when people start asking about how we grew up. They think, oh, he's one of the babies, especially the baby boy. You know, he had it easy and and it was, oh, it's the baby, baby. No, actually, it's the quite opposite. (laughs) Now, my our youngest sister, Rebecca, she was the baby one. I was more of the older brother's punching bag, so to speak. (laughs) Um, So a, a lot of like my character DNA, my character makeup was really formed just the being in the placement of the order that. I was born in because it's kind of interesting when you talk to us independently, I've heard different perspectives of growing up and, and you can see a lot of, I mean, we all have a lot of similarities, but we have, there's a lot of different dynamic personalities that you and I can both agree on. And that could be a whole nother podcast. Like that might be like a seven series podcast uh, (laughs) down, down the road that we would still have to condense (laughs) <laughs> there'd be a lot of editing in that one. A lot of editing. So at a young age, I was learning how to, to negotiate and learning how to speak up louder in order to be heard. Uh, a lot of times with humor, you know, that's just came natural to me when, you know, shortcomings growing up because being in a large family, you know, it's, you, you have the necessities, you know, clothes on your back, food on the table, roof over your head, but you learn to find humor and growing up and it just kind of grew and kind of honed that skill and sharpened it the older that I got. And did you find sometimes that humor was a great tool to have, especially to diffuse situations? Absolutely. 
Yes. So whether it was in my own relationships or, or in the family, something just like you said, you can just feel the tension in a room. I always found it amazing that you could just say or do something so small, but yet so funny. And it can just completely erase that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen that many, many times. And it's interesting in your observation that because there was such a wide span in ages, but we each had a different experience, especially when you talk about the age differences and the, it's almost like a different generation. And so you had different experiences. Did you find that as you listen to everyone else's stories? Absolutely. And And I also find it fascinating, even today, how I can relate to so many people, different age groups and in different generations and different backgrounds, because like Mike is 20 years older than I am and listening and watching and learning from the older siblings. I'm not saying that you're an older sibling. You're just, (laughs) you just, yeah, you, you're just a seasoned veteran of the group. And as an adult, I find that. I can hold conversations with people that are older than me better than people that are my age because that's what I've grown up knowing how to do. It's more relatable, whether it's sports, history, food, music. I find, and that's something that I never really thought about until much later in life that, you know, people say you, you can just talk to anybody. And that's true. I can. I can. Just, and, and my son, Jack, is the same way. He has that same gene. He's never met a stranger. But a lot of that, too, has to do with having so many siblings that were older than me and being able to relate to older people and from different generations. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I I mentioned in a prior podcast, when I tell people that I'm one of 11 children, I get the same questions. Were you Catholic? Did you have a television? And are you all real? And you know, I think what they mean by the real part is you know, like, were they blended families? Are there half siblings, step siblings, whatever? And so, you know, I always tell them, I was like, no, it's the same mom and dad, no twins. Do you get similar questions? Weekly. Matter of fact, I had that question yesterday and somebody even went more specific. They said, are you, did you grow up Irish Catholic? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I was like, I got to give you some respect because I've, you know, I'm, going to be 37 in August. And I have not been asked a specific Irish Catholic. What are are the Irish Catholics doing that has me pegged for them? (laughs) What was your answer? For like one of the few times in my life, I was like stuttering. I had to kind of think, I was like, no, I don't, I don't think so. My son has red hair. Like I was trying to rationalize like, well, my son has red hair. (laughs) Maybe, maybe I am Irish Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) what was it like growing up and even today having six sisters you better answer Uh, that very carefully yeah i felt i felt like the room just got a lot colder (laughs) and um for some reason i feel like everybody's staring at me even though i'm in the room by myself so as i was saying earlier you know my brothers if i wanted to be able to run with them with their friends or play sports with them i had to get tough pretty quick because they were bigger stronger faster so they had a lot to do with physically toughening me up but my sisters to this day scared me to death like (laughs) i (laughs) i will think twice or three times before i might upset one of them because you know, I could take a slug on the shoulder or a purple nurple from one of my brothers, but the mental ninja abilities 
and just the threat. It's almost like my sisters just have a switch off a tree and it's like, you know that they're not going to hit you, but it's like, I think they're going to hit me with it. <laughs> like, I don't want to find out. I will tell you something that Aaron said a few years ago, and it's when mom was living with us here in Oklahoma and Aaron was listening to all these stories that mom was telling about the girls specifically. And Aaron sat back and he said, you know, all of your daughters, all six of them, they could have their own country and form their own army. Yeah, there's a lot of humor in that, but I believe that could happen. Like that's, that is very likely to happen. When I had told that story, Jennifer said she wanted to be secretary of defense. Oh yeah, that's fitting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I firmly believe that um, Jennifer could probably try out to play something on defense for the Dallas Cowboys. Absolutely. Yeah. They, as a matter of fact, they need her. They, they need her. <laughs> How has growing up in a large family helped you as a parent? You are a parent of three. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that and maybe how growing up in a large family has helped you be the parent you are today? So growing up in a large family, you see so many different personalities, but also you see some similarities as well. And you also learn, like I learned growing up, that different siblings require different types of attention and direction. Whether I realized that at a young age or not, you know, looking back on it, I did learn that. And it didn't really come all together until we started having kids. I have a, this is crazy to say it out loud, I have a soon-to-be 13-year-old daughter. Yeah, that's, I can't accept that. Yeah. And I have a 10-year-old daughter and a soon-to-be nine-year-old son. And all three have completely different personalities. And all three, you can't parent them all the exact same way. You know, you do want to have a level of consistency, but you also know which direction to go with each child to be able to teach them and know that they will retain that lesson. And you're married, Ashley. My high school sweetheart. Yes. I love that. So you guys started dating like in middle school, right? In eighth grade. A matter of fact, I used to wait with Ashley out after school and in middle school for her mom to come pick her up. I had just moved to Flower Mound after spending many years in Pilot Point. We didn't live close because so, in Pilot Point, we could walk to school. Everything was that close. But when we moved to Flower Mound, we had to take the bus to and from home. But I would wait with Ashley until her mom came to pick her up. And then after her mom would pick her up, I would walk home because I'd already missed the bus. Oh. And in eighth grade, I told her mom, I just want you to know I'm going to marry your daughter. You said that you told her that in eighth grade? I told her that oh. in eighth grade. I said, I'm going to marry your daughter. She said, okay, well, you have to have at least 15 girlfriends by then. And I was like, nope, not going to happen. That is and, adorable. But like, it, as adorable and as sweet as it is, like me being a parent, I, and I told her this, why didn't you slug me? <laughs> why didn't you grab my hand and break a finger, you know, punch me in the nose? Because that, like now, if someone told me that, I would seriously think about contacting a lawyer because I will need one. That's pretty ballsy. I was a pretty confident kid. I say I was confident. My wife says I was cocky. Um, it's a fine line. It's a fine line. I'm going to spin it my way. And so how long have you guys been married? We have, so we got married in 2005, so 15 years in October. Good. That was good, quick math on your part. Yeah. Yeah. Not bad with one cup of coffee. I loved your observation about having to parent each child differently. And my situation is the exact same way. Aaron and Sarah could not be more opposite. Polar 
opposites and they do require different parenting. Do you ever sit back and say, how in the world did mom and dad do it? Like, how did they parent 11 different children? All the time. You know, I know every parent will second guess decisions that they make. And then I think our mom and dad had those same thoughts times 11. So whenever you can get really caught up in thinking, oh my gosh, am I doing the right thing? And, you know, it's kind of like, that's one of those things you can think back on and it's like, okay, they did it. We turned out amazing. Exactly. So it's one of those things where it humbles you. Right. And one thing I always say is in those moments, they didn't have a lot of time to make decisions. No. No. So they would be faced with something and they just had to make a decision, hope yeah. for the best and move on. They didn't have time to no. examine it and consult with professionals. I use that in quotation marks and seek the advice of a, of a counselor. And I mean, it was just, and I've shared this before, they were trying to figure out how to put food on the table and make sure we had a roof over our head and clothes on our backs. Yeah. I like to use this analogy and this is very fitting for our mom and dad. I mean, they were drinking water through a fire hose. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, they they didn't have the luxury of trying to create a full house moment. No. You know, <laughs> there was none of that. There was none of that. It's if you came crying saying that you were hurt or injured, if your leg wasn't like detached from your body, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to rub a little dirt on it. And uh, I love you, but yeah. we need to keep moving forward. Yeah, we got things to do. Yeah, carry on. Carry on, warriors. So tell us a little bit about what you do today. So you're married, three amazing children. And so what what do you do for a living? So I work for my father-in-law. He has a bearing and power transmission company that I help him with. And I also have my own company where I rent out enclosed cargo trailers. Texas Cargo Trailers, right? Texas. Yeah, that's a nice plug. Thank you. Texas Cargo Trailers in Argyle, Texas. This podcast brought to you by <laughs> Trailers. That's right. That sounded great. Thank you very much. <laughs> but seriously, if anyone is listening and you need a trailer for hauling anything, basically, right? For moving. Right. Yeah. I, I saw a picture of that amazing vehicle, that old classic old yeah, vehicle so, that had moved. Thank yeah. You. I, yeah. I have, uh, I've got two different sizes. Um, I've named each trailer after one of my kids and so I have a big one I call Big Jack, and it's a it's a an enclosed car hauler. It's 24 feet long. It's a gigantic trailer, but and you know that one is obviously it's built to haul vehicles. But people really love to rent that one if they're moving, whether it's local or cross country. Um, sometimes people like I had somebody recently who ordered a custom made piece of furniture that wasn't heavy, but it was really really tall, and uh, they couldn't find a trailer from any of the big box store companies that could fit it. Um, and because they spent so much money on it, uh, it fit perfectly in Big Jack because it's seven feet tall on the inside. And I mean, it's its its own niche. And um, yeah, it's I'm very happy with the way it's growing and progressing. It's awesome. You are an entrepreneur at heart, which many of us are. I think um, several yeah. of, the, of the siblings, we have this entrepreneurial spirit about us. You know, we have that job that, that pays the mortgage and that we love. Right. But we also recognize that we are here for bigger purposes and we grab those by the tail on the daily. Right. Exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself. How old are you? I am 36, about to turn 37. <sighs> That's just amazing to me. August it's 11th, right? August 11th. 
Yeah. I'm very good at remembering the dates of the birthdays. However, I never know how old anyone is. I actually have to second guess my, like Ashley and I will look at each other when someone says, how old are you? And I'm like, I will say it, but it's more of a, in the form of a question. 36. <laughs> I'm the, and the only reason I can remember my own age is because I was born in 70. So it's a nice round number. And so, you know, math is not so my fitting. So fitting. A yeah. nice round, neat number that is so fitting. I, in my mind, you guys are all still really young. So I consider myself part of the older siblings, the seasoned siblings. So in my mind, I always just think of you guys as much, much younger. So when you say to me that you're going to be 37, like I can't, I'm 37. Like I think I'm 37. You're still, yeah, you're still in your 30s. So a topic I really want to talk about today, because when we talk about humor and healing and hope is your cancer diagnosis. You are a cancer survivor. I don't know if that's the right term we use now. I, you know, I don't know. I, I hear and read a lot of things. I like the word survivor. I like it all because it has the same meaning at the end of the day that everybody that battles cancer, win, lose, or draw is a survivor. I heard the late Greg Stewart Scott say that when somebody dies of cancer, that's not losing. That's right. You're still inspiring we're still learning. The torch just gets passed to somebody else to keep fighting. Right. I did a 5K last year and it was for cancer. And everyone wore the color bandana for the particular cancer that they were running in support of. And of course, I wore the green. And at the end of that, I did a Facebook Live on my Hellcat page. I address this topic because I no longer say when someone dies from cancer that they lost their battle with cancer. I, I don't say that anymore because it's not true. You don't lose a battle with cancer. This person died and it doesn't take away the fact that they fought and they gave it everything they had from that awful disease. So take me back to when did you realize you were 35 years old? What made you think something was wrong? So this all happened in 2018. I was diagnosed in October of 2018. I'll go even further back than that. Months prior to that, I was getting progressively more sick and, and sick in a total sense of vomiting, lethargic. I couldn't stay awake. I just, I had no energy and I just felt the worst. Like I couldn't find words to really describe how bad I felt because I've never felt this way before. And it was really the worst I've ever felt in my life. And you had always been very healthy. Very. Yeah. I mean, athletic. Yes, I played sports and having three kids, we are always busy and on the go. And I'm not someone that would get sick. And and we kind of, it's kind of an inside joke in our family that, you know, I would say I don't get sick because I didn't get sick. And it's kind of weird how it all came full circle. But I was feeling horrible and I'd never felt this way before. And my family and my wife especially said, okay, you, you need to go see a doctor and figure out what's going on. And, and I was like, okay, yeah. And, and I was thinking maybe it was something dietary. The older I got, maybe I was developing something that's just not agreeing with me. And then it was one day I was at work. I was in a warehouse and I just had this, something came over me and spoke to me. And it was like, I need to go see a doctor. Mm. Be, I mean, nothing had changed. And I was feeling awful. Like it, it couldn't have gotten any worse than what it was. Even just the mundane of just walking around. It took everything to do it. And I literally stopped in that moment and I called, uh, it's actually the same doctor 
that my father-in-law uses. It, it, that's all new to me. Uh, anytime if I wasn't feeling ill, I would just go to a local quick clinic and, and remedy that. Um, so I called and set an appointment. They were able to get me in rather quickly. I was telling them what was going on and how bad I felt. And she even made a statement. She said, you don't look well. She was you know, doing a physical exam and she thought, okay, we're going to need to take you in to get a scan. We want to do a scan just to look because they thought maybe it was something gallbladder related. I, I really want to stop right there in the story and just point out how thankful and that's how much of a divine intervention those moments were. Going to a doctor, that specific doctor, because anyone else could have just prescribed something to treat the symptoms. And, you know, let's see how this works. You know, let's come back in a couple of months and then see how we're progressing. She took it a step further to see visually what could be causing this. And that's kind of where it all started. I went in for the scan and that poor imaging tech, mm. um, I'll never forget. He was about my age and in an almost dark room, I could see the color leaving his face. And I thought, I'm in trouble. Before that moment, did cancer ever cross your mind? No, not once, not one time. I thought I was dealing with something dietary or maybe something I was becoming allergic to. It was just something that was so far from being a possibility. And I even remember because he had to stop and he was even kind of stuttering when he was talking to me because he didn't know what to say or do. Mm. And that's kind of what made me think this isn't good. Wait, you're good at reading people. Yes, I am good at reading people. And I thought, okay, this isn't very good. So he had to go get not just another employee. He went and got one of his higher up peers. And she said, Mr. Burr, I'm going to have you come over here and we'll be with you in just a second. And that's when she came out to me and moments later, and I was in this room by myself. And she said, Mr. Burr, we believe this is lymphoma. And as soon as she said that, I thought, what, what is that? Like, I don't even, and I thought, okay, well, how, how are we going to fix that? Like I, I had no idea. Like it still wasn't registering with me what lymphoma is. And they said, we're going to get your doctors on the phone and we're going to tell them what we just found. And then that began a 200 mile an hour experience of multiple. I, I had CT scans, MRI scans and blood. I mean, the, this is coming from a guy who, didn't have a regular doctor to now I'm being passed around this big hospital system, like almost like a six flags fast pass. Like I am like, they're moving me ahead of the line in front of people. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. But then I'm, then it always hits you. It's like, "Mm, there's a reason why they're putting me in front of everybody. And, and, and I'll never forget too, when they were, when I was going into the CT room, there were two nurses in there and they were my age because they were, you know, they were saying, oh, hey, we're just months apart. And then we all at that like, one time kind of had a realization because they knew more than I did, but I had a feeling like something's not right. And then you could just see their ch- the change in their demeanor too. So as they're doing the scans, the mass was in your abdomen. I had, right? a, I had a large mass that was 22 centimeters in size just in my abdomen alone. And then they also found that, that I had some that encapsulated my heart. And I also had some in my neck. So it was, it started like they could, they could tell because of just the size of the mass, it started in my abdomen and it was working its way up to my brain because everything got so expedited and moved along. Like I honestly, I couldn't tell you how many scans I had in that one day. 
And it was in a matter of four or five hours. But I mean, it was three or four different types of scans, you know, on top of different types of labs and other types of screenings and a barrage of questions, you know, from all kinds of people. And you had no medical history. I mean, no. you didn't have medical record at my age, 50. I have 12 years of records when I started going regularly to my primary care physician at every three months getting blood drawn because of our family history of diabetes and heart failure. We have some cancer. You know, I, I know Grandma Bert had colon cancer, I believe. Dad had a brief history with colon cancer, but it was remedied and treated fairly quickly. There's not a lot of cancer. So that's not really something that is on our immediate radar. I know for me, it's been diabetes, kidney disease, heart disease. But in your case, at just 35 years old, you hadn't started that because you've always been so healthy and you had no reason to start seeing a doctor and go to a doctor. So here you are. And they're like, whoa, wait a minute. I got all the questions. Do you smoke? No. Do you drink? No. Everything that they can ask to try to figure out a possible link. They even told me that the labs that they were doing on me, they said that there's not even anything in your blood work. Like your blood work looks almost perfect. And they said that we, we there's not even anything in your blood work to show that. So, I mean, even if I went into a primary care physician and they did labs, there would not be anything that would have been flagged for more of an investigation. Right. Right. So what was the next step? What happened next in this process? So what happened next? So I was actually by myself at the hospital because this was supposed to be just a, an ordinary scan to see if maybe a possible, I had gallstones or some sort of a gallbladder issue. And in the middle of the chaos, I said, I need to call my wife because I just felt, I was like, this isn't good. Mm-hmm. This isn't good. I don't have a whole lot of experience of being in a hospital and, and needing some medical attention, but I knew that this was not good. So I called Ashley and I didn't have a whole lot of time because they were literally, we were walking down the hallway to go to another scan. And I said, Hey, she said, okay, what did they find? I said, I'm going to need you to get up here. I, I don't know what's going on. And she dropped what she was doing and she just, she booked it. And we kind of exchanged text messages on her way to Dallas. We, you know, we live an hour away from where I was at. So I can't imagine the white knuckling that, and then what was going through her mind. But I did text her. I said, they're telling me that it might be lymphoma. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wish I hadn't have done that while she was driving. I, I wish I hadn't have done that because it was just one of the you know senior nurses that was there that said that it could be this, but we're not sure. We'll need to send you back over to your primary care physician. So they took all, after all the scans and all the images were done, they sent it over to my doctor's office, which is across the street from the hospital. But she was waiting on this. I called her and she said, hey, we just got it. Give me just a little bit of time and we'll look over this. And I remember we were in the parking lot at the doctor's office and it was pouring down rain, pouring down rain. And she calls me and she says, Mark, it's Dr. Becker, you have cancer. And in that moment, like everything came to a stop. In that moment, everything just stopped. Also in that moment, I was thankful in a way that Ashley was there. She heard it and I didn't have to tell her, but we both just fell into each other in the car in the parking lot. And I really don't remember what else the doctor was saying other than we're going to send you to the oncologist 
which is also across the street, Texas Oncology, like right away. So I can't remember how many days it was from the time I was told it's cancer to the time I actually went to Texas Oncology because everything happened so fast that it seemed like it happened in just a matter of minutes. Fast forward to going to Texas Oncology, they immediately sent me in to have biopsies done. And this is in October of 2018, correct? That's correct. Went in for a doctor's appointment like on October 1st. I was, by the time I got to the pathologist, I was already diagnosed in less than eight days. That's how fast everything moved with what is called like the term for what I have. It was stage four non-Hodgkin's follicular lymphoma. When they put a name to it, it really made it even more real. That's the faceless monster. There it is. Yeah. And especially that that stage four designation. I remember when you called me, I was out in Vegas with our Aunt Joe for work. And I'll, I'll never, never, ever to this day forget that phone call. And that's what stuck with me. You know, I didn't know much about cancer like I do now. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know much about cancer. But I knew stage four wasn't good. I didn't really learn the staging of it unless I just didn't wasn't sinking in with me until a little bit later on mm-hmm. when they told me they said, have we have, have we told you your staging yet? And I'm thinking, I, I don't even know. Like we're, yeah, you know, I don't even know what that means. What do you mean? By yeah, staging? Yeah, I, mean, that, enhance. I know about that kind of staging, but this kind of staging, no, I don't. Yeah. Know it, it, yeah. They told me it, it's stage four because I had had the big mass of my abdomen in my chest, in my neck. I even had 20% involvement in my bones. I, I go and have these biopsies done. They take a biopsy out of my hip. They, take five to six samples from my abdomen and the largest mass. And that's what they were able to determine the exact type of cancer it is of it being a follicular lymphoma. Did they talk about surgery or they sent you straight into chemotherapy? I went straight to chemotherapy treatment. My particular type of cancer, you cannot surgically remove because it's in your your lymph nodes. Uh, it's, it's follicular. And, uh, and does that mean in your in your lymph nodes in your blood? Correct. Yes. So I immediately they start talking about this is what we're going to do. They said we're going to do six rounds of chemotherapy, and then we're going to after chemotherapy is done, you're going to need twenty rounds of radiation. So when we start talking about chemotherapy, I remember she said we're going to this is called RCHOP, and that meant nothing to us. But each RCHOP. There is a medical term for each letter. And RCHOP is the strongest chemotherapy on the market. And they said, based on my age and my physique, they said that we believe you can handle this. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, they've got faith in me. They know that I can handle this. But at the same time, not everybody can get this. Wow. If I was older, they wouldn't be able to offer that to them because it is heavy duty. So they sent me in. I had a chemo port surgically inserted into my chest. And then the very next day after I had, I mean, I still had sutures on my chest. The very next day I went in for my first chemo treatment, which was on November November 1st. I had the chemo port put in on Halloween 2018. And my first chemo treatment was on November 1st. And how long did those treatment sessions last? The treatment sessions for me lasted anywhere from 10 to 12 hours because the very first treatment 
my body was having a reaction. They explained to me how I felt horrible. I felt this is the worst I've ever felt. I really know how to explain it. I said, I just felt like death. And they said, because you were dying, your, your body was dying. And that, I, that still resonates with me. I can still hear that of them telling me that. So my body was doing everything that it could to survive. So when I was having my first chemo treatment, I started having a reaction and I didn't even know I was having a reaction because the medication and chemotherapy is so heavy and it's so hard that you, you really don't know what's going on around you. I thought Ashley was grabbing my arm and shaking me, trying to get my attention, mm. but my whole body was shaking Yeah, and I didn't, I didn't even know it. So they had to slow the administer of the chemotherapy down and then give me some medication to keep me from reacting to it. So that actually stretched my treatments out a lot longer. I was basically there from the time they opened till the time they closed for every treatment. Wow. I mean, that sounds like it was some heavy duty. This RCHOP is not messing around. It does not mess around. It's a very sophisticated medicine. They, the way they explain it is, it's, is if you have a stadium packed with 100,000 people and you only have one person that's wearing a red hat, the R-Chop doesn't just wipe out everybody in the stadium. It goes right to the person that's wearing the red hat. Now, it's still very hard on the body. It's a heavy, heavy-duty chemotherapy. But it, it is more sophisticated than the chemotherapy that existed 10 years ago. Do you mind sharing about how you broke this news to your children? Yeah. Um, and I'll apologize ahead of time. It might make me cry. That's all right. Me too. <laughs> um, it was pretty hard going home that day and we gathered them all in the living room and I had to tell them that I got some, not so much very good news from the doctor that daddy has cancer. And uh, my oldest daughter immediately understood what that was. Uh, she immediately understood and she knew what that was and the ramifications associated with cancer. Libby, my middle child, kind of understood it, obviously needed some more information. And Jack knew that it was not good. He knew it was not good. And he was just so confused. And there's not a playbook. No. There's not a playbook to go by to tell your children that you have cancer. So I knew that in that moment that I had to be a warrior. Yeah. I had to show them that I was not afraid, that I was not going to back down, that I have the right people surrounding me, that we're going to beat this. We are going to beat this because it, it, it takes everybody. And they were going to model how you responded to that. Absolutely. Because that's we, what our kids do. They model how we respond to our circumstances. They just do, especially if they've not been in that circumstance before. That's exactly right. And I give so much credit to my wife, Ashley. She, it's going to make me cry too. Uh, she is everything, the, every cliche that you could think of. My rock, my son. There were days that I just had nothing left in me. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. It's all right. And I couldn't imagine being in her shoes. Right. Her husband was just diagnosed with cancer. And she also had three kids 
that she had to take care of. So she had to take care of a husband with cancer and three children who were scared to death. And there were so many times where I had nothing left in me that she just picked it up and kept going. Didn't miss a beat. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I said earlier, like it it takes everybody, everybody to fight. How did your community show up for you? Oh my gosh. So we live in Argyle, the community. It was as if they were along the journey from day one. We immediately had people in the community bringing food. Like as soon as this all came about every day, like we had food delivered to our house every day for literally months. And that was so comforting for me because you know, as, as a parent, as a father, you know, one of your biggest priorities is to take care of your family and just, just having that burden, not just off of me, but off of Ashley too, because she, she was drinking water through a fire hose, multiple fire hoses. Yeah. And the counselors and the teachers at each of the kids schools were incredible checking in on the kids, making sure like, if they needed to come down and talk to them, which did happen on more than one occasion. Yeah. Uh, they, they came up with, and I call it national, but they came up with a, a more than one uh, national Mark birthday in, <laughs> in the school district. Um, and people would wear the t-shirts that our best friends made. And that was another part, you know, my girls are a part of a, a dance studio where it's more than just studio owner parent relationship. I mean, we're really close friends with them and we didn't know this, but they had started making hundreds of t-shirts and like the one that you're wearing right. <laughs> in this family, yeah. no fights alone. And they started selling them to help us out. So it was, there were so many people within the community people that we knew that, showed up and a lot of people that didn't know what to do. They just said, tell us, give me something to do. So on Halloween, October 31st, I was going to have my chemo pour put in and the church that we go to in town, tribes church, the pastor and the associate pastor was there. Now keep in mind, we live an hour away. They drove all the way down to Dallas unbeknownst to us. And they were there. He actually went with me, just up to the point where I had to go into the operating room and they prayed with us and our brother Bubba, Bubba Kenneth was there. And so was mother as well as Ashley, obviously. And he stayed with, they stayed with them for a little while to make sure that they were okay and prayed with them. And just the amazing amount of support that, and, and I can tell you at first it was, I didn't know how to receive it. That was my next question is, it sounds like you didn't even really have to ask for help, but sometimes that's um, as your gender opposite twin, it's difficult to ask for help. And then when you don't even have to ask for it and people are giving it to you, that's kind of a, a an area of discomfort sometimes, huh? I had to learn really quick that I just had to let go and let people help Yeah, because there were so many things out of my control that mm-hmm. I knew I'm not going to control it. The only thing that I could control was putting all of my energy into winning. 
and I've just let everybody else take care of whatever they wanted to take care of. Yeah, there was no itinerary for this. There was no plan. There was no outline on how to manage this. No, Mike Tyson says it best. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Absolutely. So it sounds like your community of Argyle, of course, your family. We bought any T-shirt that was being made. We'll just say that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, the hashtag Bert for the win, hashtag built for this. When you think back and think about that built for this, what did that mean to you? So that was one of the things that just came to me, you know, growing up and, and I don't want to get into a too big of a religious point of view, but I, I do have faith in God and I don't believe in coincidences. I've always believed at a young age that everything happens for a reason. Any shortcomings or things that I look back on in my life that I thought were hard, it all in an instance from the time Dr. Becker told me, Mark, you have cancer. So much of my life made sense. So much of my life that even when my like I would share things about growing up to my wife that would just make her cry. But I believe that everything happens for a reason. I believe that no one ever wants to believe that they were supposed to get cancer. But in a, in a way, I felt like I was built for that moment. That each stage of my life, he was putting on armor and teaching me lessons. And because I'm a competitive person, I played sports growing up and I didn't back down from anything because of my competitiveness. One of the most anticipating things about the process when I first started was waiting to get my chemo port put in. Because when I learned that I had cancer, I was ready to start chemo the next day. They said, hang on, big boy, we got to get your chemo port in. I used to wake up in the middle of the night, many restless nights, and I would just walk around the house, check on the kids and check on Ashley and just kind of stare off into the darkness outside, just trying to take in the moment and listen. And everything that came through was you're going to walk through the valley. You're not afraid because you have faith in me. And I had this overwhelming feeling of like I was ready to go play a football game. Like in this would be in the middle of the night. And there was one time where I shouted and I just, it just came over me. I was, thank goodness I didn't wake anyone up, but I shouted, I'm ready to fight. I felt like a fighter outside of a boxing ring, just pacing around waiting to fight this faceless monster. I had zero fear of. And and that's the the term. And I, I can't remember who I said it to first, but I said that I was built for this. It was a way to kind of explain to people that knew me, I got this. We got this. Right. And it was at the same time in October that our father passed away too. It was. Did you feel like as he was on the other side that you could feel maybe his presence also cheering you on? Absolutely. I could hear him so much during the process, whether I was in the infusion room getting chemotherapy or in a PET scan or getting radiation or on days where many days where I couldn't even lift my head up off the pillow. And he used to tell our brothers when I was young and if they were giving me a hard time for whatever, because I was younger and smaller, he would tell them, y'all just watch one day. He's going to show you. And I always took that as, well, there's going to be a day where I get big and strong enough and they're not going to be able to do that to me. And that day that did happen. Yeah. But I always went back to that, to one day 
He's going to show you. And it was those words of encouragement that gave me hope and kind of that extra push. Like I am going to show everybody because I had so many people fighting with me, praying with me. And I didn't have to look very far for motivation every day that I woke up with my wife right there and seeing my kids' faces, it was very easy to stay motivated. If there is someone listening right now that is going through this type of cancer or any type of cancer, what would you want them to hear right now? That is not an easy question to answer, but I can tell you, my my fellow warrior fighters out there, if you are listening, we have such a great responsibility that as bad as it sucks to be told you have cancer and as easy as it is to be victimized by cancer, you cannot let that be the reason that it makes you tap out or that it makes you give up. It needs to be the reason that pushes you forward because there's a lot of other people in your situation that are facing some extreme circumstances with cancer. And if you are to just be an example or an inspiration to one other person that's going through that, you are carrying on the fight. You are carrying on the baton of continuing to fight and climb and to win. And what would you say to someone who is taking care of someone who is going through cancer and cancer treatment? There is no wrong decision. You are going to question so many things that if this was right, if this is wrong, just the fact that you're there to take care of someone who's going through cancer means more than what that person can even tell you in words. And you are the motivation. If you are there taking care of someone with cancer, you are one of the motivations in their life. So just keep that in mind in days where you might be questioning yourself, you are doing so much more than you think. I just want to say how thankful I am, how grateful I am for my family, like my wife, Ashley, my kids, all my wonderful siblings, the Argyle community from the school district to the church neighbors, you know, the support that we have gotten it. Like I don't have the right words to express how grateful we are. Texas Oncology, they do amazing work and they have incredibly loving people there that genuinely love what they do. Nobody's there because it's a J-O-B. Everybody there is there because they're passionate about healing people. You know, I always think of it as that inner circle. I feel like Ashley was your inner circle. And then there were the siblings and then the outer circle of friends and then the community. Like it's this ripple effect. What do you say to those who are in that outer circle that sometimes like, what, what do I do? What do I say? How can I show up for them? What is your message for those people in that circle? Don't ever think that you're asking too much or you're bothering or anything is that that's a, a that's a lot of what people will say is I, I don't mean to bother you or I don't want to keep asking you this because you probably hear this a hundred times but how are you feeling how are things going there's no such thing as too much of anything because it's it's just a, it's another reminder of the amount of support that someone has and the, and when you really look at it there's no such thing as too much support regardless of 
your circumstances. So people that would be on a, on an outer circle keep wanting to do, keep wanting to help in whatever way possible. Just keep on. Almost put aside your insecurities about it and just putting yourself out there. Because again, the worst that's going to happen is that person's going to say, no, we're good or not even answer you, you know, and in those moments, just to be aware and have that grace and perception that this is where they are, but I want them to know I'm here and I'm going to do anything right. That's exactly right. Because there's going to be a day that you might catch that person. Like for example, myself, uh, you might catch me on a day where I just don't have a lot in me to really do or feel or anything. And you might catch me or, or, or that person or someone in that close circle on a day where they actually needed someone to talk to, someone to cry to, someone to say, you know, I could really use some prayers right now, or I could really use a cup of coffee right now. You know, it just, you just never know what day at what point in time you might be catching them. And it could be on a day where they're like, you know what? Everybody's been amazing. We're covered right now. But don't stop checking in. Don't stop asking. Don't stop trying to love. Right. I love that. So what is your current situation today? Like what's your diagnosis? What is the what's the latest news in this journey? So the latest news is um, after six rounds of chemo. 20 rounds of radiation. I was told on Mother's Day of 2019 that I was in remission. Stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma was in remission. And after I finished those treatments, they put me on a reduction treatment, a maintenance treatment that I will be doing for two years. I've completed one year of it. I do it every eight weeks. And so I have another year left my most recent scans, everything looks great. Because the mass in my abdomen was so big that it's not going to go away, but it's dead. They attribute it to basically like a dead anthill. They will continue to monitor that and look at it. And I will finish up my reduction treatments because what the maintenance treatments does, it goes in there on a much smaller level to keep anything that's trying to hibernate and come back later. It just wipes it away. And can they not surgically remove? They cannot surgically remove the the mass. Now, you and I have this trait, which I believe we learned it growing up. And that is we find humor in weird stuff. Like we used humor to diffuse situations. We used humor because quite frankly, sometimes it's kind of fun to make people feel awkward. Am I right? Very much so. I really, I, in, a, in a weird way, I really enjoy making people uncomfortable because I like to use humor with just even in as a cancer patient, I had this thing in my, it would drive my wife crazy, but I would call it hashtag cancer jokes. <laughs> Poor Ashley. Poor <laughs> but, Ashley. But because she knows me so well, she knows me better than I know myself. She knew that this was coming. Um, so anything that would happen in our normal day life, I would find something to relate it to cancer and I would laugh about it. Sometimes she would laugh about it but not as much as I would. One of those moments, and she's going to kill me for this, but I can't help myself. So during your, I think it was right after you had the port put in, I'm not sure if chemotherapy had started yet. Something happened with the jugular vein. Very much. Yeah. Why did you share that? So it was after my... Why am I laughing? (laughs) Proceed. 
Because you know, when you're faced with the with the option of laughing or crying, we're going to choose laughing every time. <laughs> so it was after my first chemo treatment. It, it was literally like overnight post treatment. I woke up one morning and I couldn't lift my head. Like my chin was down in my chest, and if I tried to lift it up, like all the nerves in my body were reacting, and it was a weird feeling. My entire body would just want to spaz out. And we called the doctor and I explained to them what they were doing. And they said, okay, we might have a blood clot. And I was like, all right. They said, very calmly, like, we need you to come down as soon as you can. And then uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk to you and we'll, we'll talk about next steps. So I thought, okay, great. What else can they throw at us, right? So we get down to the doctor and they, she actually meets me out in the lobby and they don't do that. They don't come out to the lobby and examine you. She came out and she was feeling around and she was talking to me and her eyes got really big. Oh. And she says, uh, we believe you have a blood clot in your jugular. I'm sorry for the people who are listening. If you did not catch that, I had a blood clot in my jugular. I'm sorry. <laughs> At this point, I mean, seriously, I just remembered that call also. Yeah. I just want to thank you too that like all your calls over the last, you know, several months a year have, have really been pleasant. So I thank you for that. But this, this call, I remember you telling me, yeah, there was a, a blood clot in my jugular. I'm like, what the, I mean, that, that could have killed you instantly. At any moment, yeah. at, at any moment. Now they never said that, but it was very apparent because I can read people very well. And when she got that raised eyebrow energy where she had the raised eyebrows and, and I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. They sent me into the hospital. My oncologist was right there on the same campus as the hospital to go have a, a sonogram done to see exactly where the blood clot was. And that was a fun experience in itself uh, because even just the remote, just laying your finger on the surface of the skin was very painful. And I had a sonogram tech that was as if she was trying to prepare a brisket for a picnic. Um, <laughs> and um, I was sitting thinking, like, how many people are going to be at this picnic? And like, it was just, you know, she was she would literally put hold me down on that side of my body because she knew I mean, just my body's reaction was to to jerk from the pain. So to make a long story short, I had a blood clot in my jugular. Not in the legs, not in the, which, you know, it's common after surgery, maybe like, but in the jugular. In the jugular. <laughs> so obviously they resolved it. That has not happened again or returned. You and I occasionally, either via text or many times we'll begin our phone conversations with, you had a blood clot in your jugular. In the jugular. Like it's almost funnier than cancer. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ashley does not like it when we do this. No, she does not. She does not approve. This is the one she does not laugh at. But no, she does not laugh at it's it. It's just astounding to me. It's just, it's just, it just blows my mind. And that's an instance sometimes where you got to find humor. So many of emotions like come into one like back to when we were talking about being built for this and i believe everything happens for a reason i didn't 
in those moments, I was not afraid. Like I knew that this was happening for a reason that even to this day, I may not even know it yet, but I know that without any of these circumstances, I wouldn't be here right now on this amazing podcast with you with, with hopes that it's going to help somebody today, somebody down the road or many people, you know, whomever, but that's how like I personally deal in you as well is I find humor in it because humor for me is healing. Like this wall right here behind me, when your back is up against this right here, you've only got one direction to go. Right. And uh, if you can't laugh along the way, laugh anyway. (laughs) How has having cancer and going through treatment and being where you are, how has it changed the way you live your life as a husband and a father and a brother and a friend? If you could somehow encapsulate how it's changed you in those areas. You're, I remember our Aunt Michelle, who was also a cancer survivor, who also had lymphoma. You know, an aunt by marriage, not blood related, but, you know, Aunt Michelle. She told me just days after I was diagnosed that your perspective is going to change. And I heard that, but I, it didn't like really mean anything at the moment until when everything came together and during treatment, like since cancer, my perspective has changed. I really live more for the moments and like my goals, like my goals in life before like BC, before cancer, my goals BC were of course to be an amazing husband and father, but like also I had goals of reaching, I had like business goals and AC after cancer. Um, I have of course, I still want to be an amazing husband and father. Let's not get that twisted. But like I have goals of I want to see all the milestones. Like I really I look forward and I've always looked forward to the milestones, but it's like more important to me now that I want to see my kids graduate and marry, graduate college. And I want to be a granddad one day like mm-hmm. that. That means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. Um, things that you would have never thought before. You just thought, OK, well, that's going to come. But none of that's guaranteed. I have to do everything possible to make sure that I reach those milestones. Yeah. Those aren't things that you necessarily think of at 35 years old. No, no, that you you can't take anything for granted during the, this pandemic and me being a high risk, uh, high, high risk. Yeah. I'm I'm in a high risk, you know, immunocompromised, very, very compromised. You know, I I work from home. I'm, I'm able to do all my work obligations from home. And I love it because uh, I get to see my kids all day long. And it's it's just such a big blessing and cherishing every one of those little moments and not taking them for granted. Right. And and probably not sweating the small stuff now when Absolutely. You know, maybe BC before cancer, you know, things that you would maybe get a little distracted or riled up about AC after cancer. Yeah, that's just not that important. No, like we have those conversations almost every day. People that we know and that either have a Facebook post or we we hear something in conversations and, you know, we kind of think that's not really that big of a deal. Yeah. You know, whatever it has to do with, you know, relationship or job or a lot of things don't necessarily, I won't say they don't matter, but you don't sweat the small stuff for sure. 
Right, right. And it's not a matter of like minimizing something that somebody's going through, because in that moment, it does feel very true and difficult and and hard. But at the same time, to understand, you can make a choice to think about it differently. Right. And, you know, that's what I coach my clients on. And that's what I teach is it's not to minimize that it's not important, but also at the same time to be open to the thought of, I wonder if there's a different way I can look at this and be open to it to feel a different way and to get a different result. Yeah. At every, like I could not have said that better myself. And, you know, one of the things that, that I said at, at our father's service was happiness is a choice. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that came about. I, that's just something that, I mean, I've heard it along the way somewhere and it's just stuck with me. Um, even before cancer, but it's even more true now. And you can apply that to anything in life, that happiness is a choice. You choose how you react to situations. Like I make cancer jokes. That's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) And Ashley loves them. We joke about a blood clot in the jugular. Jugular. (laughs) That's what we do. We find light in situations as terrible as the news is to get that you get cancer. Mm -hmm. I also chose that I wasn't going to let that be an excuse to drag me down. I was going to choose to put in a more positive energy to win. It's awesome. It's awesome. And, you know, maybe part of the message in all this too is you don't have to have or get cancer to believe these things. You don't. Yeah. You really don't. It's, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, someone that, is a huge fan of this podcast. And I know that there's many, no, you don't have to go through cancer to learn these lessons, but to see how it applies in your life, not taking things for granted and not sweating the small stuff and being open-minded and really look at the milestones in your life and looking forward to them and working towards those. Cause I can't wait to one day to be a grandparent. I can't wait to, be at my kids' weddings and graduations. And I don't want that to happen anytime soon because they grow up too fast. They really do. I just love living in the moment for sure. Thank you so much for listening to Hellcats Hope. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe. To book me as a speaker for your next event, work one-on-one as a coach, or find more information on my upcoming book, please go to whatthehellcat.com. Thanks for listening.